Uh, good morning, everyone. So today's passage will be from Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through to the end of Isaiah 53. See, my suffering servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For if he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Hi everyone, if you've not met me before, my name's Peter Blanche, I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church, and if you're joining us online for the first time, gee, it's great to have you, and of course, if you're a regular part of our church family, it's so good to be able to gather, well, at least digitally, around God and His Word. Now, if you've been with us as we've been doing this series in Isaiah, you'd be aware that we've been liking, likening it a little bit to, uh, to climbing Mount Everest. Uh, you'll remember at the very start, we talked about base camp. And uh, we talked about there even being a telescope at base camp that allowed us to look look into some of the future of the path ahead. Uh, you might even remember that after we just left base camp after chapter five, we got to chapter six and we saw one of those very early peaks, one of those highlights on the on the whole walk of uh, rising up Mount Everest where we where Isaiah had that great vision of God. But we've also, if you've been with us, we've also as we've kind of clambered up the up the mountain. We have gone through around 40 chapters now of the hard ground of judgment. And after a long and exhausting climb, last week, if you're with us, you may well have felt that body blow. 
Uh, it's like if, if we were climbing Mount Everest, as you're climbing up the mountain, there was, you know, the cloud line is there and the, the rest of the mountain's above the clouds. And so you can't see how far you got to go. And you're getting up to the cloud line and you're thinking we're almost to the top. And then as you, as you get past the cloud line, which, which actually was the Assyrian army really, and as you miraculously come through the other side, what we found out that there was, well, there was still a long way to go up the mountain because tragically when King Hezekiah uh, was so full of self-interest and so full of his own pride that actually the, the news came that the Babylon nation was going to come and even greater enemy was here. There's even more distance to climb as the news of, of an, a much greater enemy that's going to utterly defeat them and exile them uh, came. And so on our trek up Mount Everest, as we got through the cloud line and saw that there was far more distance to go, there's a sense where there was a pause for the climbing group. And the tone of the book changed. Remember how God said, comfort, comfort my people. And as we come to this next section in Isaiah, as we continue up our trek, we come to a point where we realize that to continue, we need help. And actually, we need some very serious help. We've already had some good help along the way, haven't we? At the very start at base camp, we saw the kind of map and we got a compass. We knew the path was God was taking us on. God had this great plan. Remember, there were two parts to it. The first part was to to punish the, the rebellious. But the second part in his plan to transform the world was to uh, was to pardon the repentant, to purify the sinners. God in his plan, because his justice and holiness demands it, will punish sinners. But at the same time, for people who are ashamed of their sin, for people who are regretful of their sin, God has it in his plan that he will wash their sins away. And as we've trekked up the mountain and gone through all these passages on judgment, actually along the way we've seen it, that God has this plan to purify the repentant. I mean, even way back at the start of the plan, have a look on your screens now. Well, please have your Bibles open. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Here's where we saw it for the first time, where God said, Though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Meaning in Isaiah chapter 6, just a few chapters later, Isaiah himself had his sins atoned for. Even in chapter 40 last week, we saw that as God comforted Israel with the news that their sins would be fully paid for. And these are wonderful statements about God, about how sins will be completely removed. But at this point on our trek up, we have no idea how God's actually going to do it. As we rise above the clouds and see the path ahead, it's like there is a chasm ahead of us. And it's really quite unclear how to move forward. We hear that God will forgive sins, but we've got no idea yet how he's actually going to pull that off, how we're going to get over that chasm. And today in this longer section of Isaiah that we're looking at in chapters 42 all the way to 53, that kind of missing piece in God's plan is finally supplied. And it is an astonishing piece, and it is in arguably one of the greatest passages of the whole entire Bible where God explains how he will purify the repentant. And it's all caught up in this mysterious figure who just suddenly turns up in the book, a figure called the servant of the Lord. And he really appears out of nowhere and starts to play a very, very crucial, important role in the rescue plan that God has. And what is intriguing about this servant 
is that not only does he suddenly appear in the text, he then also suddenly disappears just as quickly. As the book of Isaiah will then just go on to talk about other things. Actually, four times in these 11 chapters that we're looking at, four times he appears suddenly and then he disappears. And each time he appears, the, so, the, the, the passages have, have become known uh, as the servant songs that, that, that Simon talked to us about. Each one of the servant songs, the mysterious servant of the Lord appears, and each time it's the same, he appears without warning, and then suddenly he's gone again. And in our, in our passage, in our sermon today, to try and hold this, this whole section of Isaiah together, these 11 chapters together, what I'm going to do is consider each of those sudden appearances and hear what's said there so we can see the big sweep of what's going on. Come with me to the first servant song. It's in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. And we're going to pick it up there at verse 1. Here's the first servant song, the first appearance, suddenly out of nowhere. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, what I want you to notice here is that the, is what we get told here is the mission that the servant will have. Uh, the servant here, we're told God loves him, God delights in him, that God is so close to him that he puts his spirit in him. But at the end of verse 1, do you see his mission? The servant will bring justice to the nations. That's the mission. And God really wants you to notice that because as the song continues, we'll look at, look at Isaiah 42 verse 3. In faithfulness, he will bring, bring forth justice. Or again, look at verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Three times we are told that he will bring this servant. He will bring justice. Now, we tend to think sometimes of justice, I think, in a too small a way. Uh, sometimes, you know, someone does a crime. It looks like they're going to get away with it. Now, someone has to bring justice to that situation. Yes, that's true, but that's, that's, that's so small. In using the word justice here, Isaiah has a much bigger thing in mind. When Isaiah talks about justice, he's actually referring to the, the way the whole universe should be. He's referring to the order and the pattern on which God wants the world to have. Uh, literally, the word for justice there is the right way. It's the correct way that creation should be. And so when verse 1 says that the, the task of this servant, the mission is justice, it's a gigantic mission. His mission is nothing less than putting God's plans for the world into full effect so that everything, and I mean everything in life, is just as God would, would want it to be. That is why you'll notice that when the servant brings justice, he doesn't just bring it to Jerusalem, but verse 1, he'll bring it to all the nations. Verse 4, this servant will bring justice to the entire earth. In other words, what this servant will do is he'll establish God's order and justice everywhere. He will institute God's purposes everywhere. He will set up the truth about God everywhere. He's going to accomplish God's plan Everywhere, everything, everywhere, just as God wants it to be. That's the mission. Now, I don't know what your to-do list is like this week, but that's a pretty big to-do list. But what's really fascinating is not just how big the mission is, but how he will go about it. Because this servant, he'll do it graciously and gently and compassionately. Look at verse 2. 
It says there that 42 verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He's not going to be overbearing. He's not going to kind of just throw his weight around. He's not going to bully people. I mean, a bruised reed, it says he's not even going to break. And in verse 3, it says that he's, he will also be faithful and steadfast in his mission. He won't falter or be discouraged, it says in verse 4. He'll never turn away from the task. And as you read about this servant and about the size of his mission and about how he goes about things, you read it and he just kind of bursts onto the scene in the book of Isaiah. And you're just left wondering, who the heck is this guy? Can you possibly think of anyone? who might fit this description and have this kind of role. Well, the Jews at the time couldn't. This, this was a very big puzzle for them. And you can't really blame them because it's not all that clear, even from within Isaiah, who this servant is. Especially as you look at the passages or in and around this first entrance of the servant whom, in whom God delights. There are other passages just in chapter 41 and, and later in chapter 42 that will talk about Israel, the, the whole nation, that they will be God's servant. So, for example, look in your Bibles there. Just go back to Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. Isaiah 41 verse 8. It says there, uh, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you, I said, you are my servant. But clearly there, isn't it? Israel is being referred to as his servant. And yet they don't really sound like the servant we've just been thinking about, the servant in whom God delights. Uh, let's call him capital S servant. Because capital F servant, remember, he will not falter or be discouraged. But here in these chapters, as we've seen over the past few weeks, faltering and discouraged is precisely what Israel has been. I mean, down in chapter 13 of chapter 41, uh, in verse 13 of chapter 41, God says to Judah, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid. That's not sounding like capital S servant to me. Or then again, on the other side of this first servant song, uh, God again talks about Israel being his servant, but again, it just doesn't sound like capital S servant that we've just been thinking about. Look at chapter 42, verse 18. It says there, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, and see who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? See, once again, it sounds like Israel here is being referred to as God's servant, but it doesn't at all sound like capital S servant that, because he wasn't blind towards God. He's actually going to be used by God to open the eyes of the blind. I'm hoping you're beginning to see why capital S servant was a puzzle for Israel in the Old Testament. Who in the world is he? It's clearly not us. And so for literally hundreds of years, the Jews would sit around and scratching their heads and this puzzle, who is he? And as you think about that question, I want you to hold that thought because we'll, we'll come back to it. 
even though I'm guessing that you've probably already worked it out. But hold that thought. Who is the servant? Come now to chapter 49. For the capital S servant of the Lord just disappears quickly out of a text at chapter 42. And he goes missing for like seven chapters. And suddenly he reappears in the second servant song in chapter 49. So come to chapter 49 and look at verse 1 there. Chapter 49, verse 1. It says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. In other words, the whole world, listen up. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Oh, gee, it's an intriguing little description here of the servant, the capitalist servant. It's saying that this servant, he's virtually been handcrafted by God, like a polished arrow, just perfect for the task that then God puts into his quiver to bring out at just the right time. Verse 4 in chapter 49 then brings a new element into this picture about the servant because here then it's suggested for the first time that this servant is going to get opposition in his mission. And the servant himself, capital S servant, will talk about a feeling of giving up. Look at chapter 49 verse 4. It says there, the servant, but the servant said, but I said, that's the servant, I've labored in vain. I've spent, I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And you see how this servant here feels like giving up. Kind of doesn't feel like he's getting anywhere, spent all his strength in vain. And yet, despite the real suffering he's feeling and disappointment, despite that feeling, in humble dependence on God, he presses on unswervingly. And so God goes on to tell him that because of his, his faithfulness, that the time is coming when the servant will be revered. That even though he'll go through this period of rejection, a time of vindication is also coming. A time when even kings and princes will acknowledge just how great he is and who he really is. Look at verse 7 and chapter 49, verse 7. It will go on to say, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. The princes will see and bow down because the Lord because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. See that, that kind of detail we're getting there? This servant will be despised and abhorred by the nation. The nation there being the nation of Israel. But ultimately, come time, even kings will bow down before him. And this is then related to another new thing that comes out in this second servant song. And that, and that is that by staying faithful to God, even in the face of opposition, the servant, he won't just help Israel. He's come to help everyone. Look at, look at verse 6 of chapter 49. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those in Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. You see, the servant, he's too big to just contain himself to just Israel. 
He's going to do stuff that will bring salvation to everyone. And it's so big and it's so important and it's so marvellous that by the time you reach the end of this second servant song, the whole earth is rejoicing over the servant in verse 13. Now, remember how I asked you to hold that thought about, well, who the heck could be this guy? Well, of course we're reading about Jesus here, aren't we? You see, while the Jews in the Old Testament couldn't figure out who capital S servant was, when you hit the New Testament, man, the New Testament writers, they almost fall over themselves to say, we've worked the puzzle out. (laughs) We know who it is. It's Jesus. I mean, he came and was despised by the nation. Israel rejects Jesus and puts him to death on a cross. And yet God ingeniously uses Jesus' death on the cross to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As Jesus bears the punishment of his people on himself and is afterward raised to life by God, vindicated and seated at the right hand of God, and every knee will one day bow before him. And here it is, all written in advance, hundreds of years before it happens. Now, while this second servant song is rejoicing in these things, interestingly, right in the middle of that second servant song, the servant gets interrupted. And Israel, he referred to as Zion, interrupts the servant with a bit of an outburst. You see it there in verse 14 of chapter 49. See verse 14? Chapter 49, verse 14 says, But Zion said, The Lord's forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. Uh, Now, Zion there is another name for Jerusalem. It's the capital city of Israel. So Zion speaking is a picture of Israel speaking. And they interrupt with this complaint. A complaint that God's forgotten us and God's deserted us. And you read it and you can go, where's this coming from? It's not 100% clear in the text. Perhaps it might be that they've heard about the coming judgment of Babylon on them and they go, we thought Assyria was bad enough, now we feel completely abandoned. You know, it might be that, but for the last several chapters, God's been talking to them about the comfort that will, the comfort that will come after that, the forgiveness of sins that will be possible after that. So I, I don't think it is that. Perhaps, and I think more likely, perhaps it's the possibility that they don't like the idea of the servant now bringing salvation to the ends of the earth rather than to just Israel. Maybe that makes them feel like they're losing some of their specialness. Certainly when Jesus was on earth and one time he mentioned about taking salvation to the ends of the earth and the Jews in the synagogue at the time tried to throw, were so angry with him they tried to throw him off a cliff. But whichever one it is, this, this outburst by Israel interrupting the servant sets off, I think, a very powerful contrast between the servant, capital S servant, and Zion. The servant, on one hand, despite the opposition, he will stay faithful to God and rely on God for help. Whereas Zion, because they don't like the way God is doing things, they'll just complain. Well, God himself steps in to, res- to respond to the, com- to the outburst. You see it in verse, uh, chapter 49, verse 15. Here's God's response. He, he says to the outburst, to, the, to, the, to Israel, he says, Can a mother 
forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. See, Israel may feel abandoned, but God says, no, no, wait, it's exactly the opposite. You're never out of my mind. He can't forget them any more than a nursing mother can forget the baby at her breast. And so it is now that God here in this section enters into actually what is quite a long speech, all the way into chapter 50, where he puts all these images together to affirm to Judah, to Israel, of his tireless commitment to them. And on the way through, he points out to them that although he has been really committed to them, the real problem, the real problem is Israel's unresponsiveness to him, Israel's lack of commitment to him. They may feel abandoned and forsaken, but the reason they feel this is because in truth, they have abandoned and forsaken God. God has never stopped thinking about them, never stopped wanting to bless them. And the whole reason the servant's coming onto the scene now is to restore them and bring salvation beyond them to the ends of the earth. And what happens is for Israel is that when God comes to help them, no one bothers answering the door. And so you see that in chapter 50, verse 2. Look at chapter 50, verse 2. God says to the, to the, to the nation in response to their complaint, when I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? See, it's not that God doesn't want to save Israel. It's not that he can't save Israel. It's just that they don't seem to want to be helped. All of which sets that scene for the servant who got interrupted to resume his speech in the third servant song again to tell us about the suffering he's going to go through and again to further highlight this contrast between the servant and Israel. Whereas Israel has a track record of refusing God's help, the servant sees that it will be God's help that will eventually help him and vindicate him. And so look at verse 5 of chapter 50. It says, The sovereign Lord has opened my eyes. This is the capital S servant speaking. I've not been rebellious. I've not turned away. I've offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled my beard. I I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint and I will know I will not be put to shame. It's a very vivid description there, isn't it, of Jesus' very real life experience. The mocking, the spitting, the disgrace, the beating, It's all what Jesus went through. Even his personal resolve where he sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. The confidence in God despite the opposition. The looking forward to his heavenly father for final vindication. It's Jesus written about hundreds of years earlier. But the thing to notice, the particular thing to notice is that contrast between between Zion and the servant. Because in the midst of suffering, the servant looks to the sovereign Lord for his help while as Israel will not look to God for help. In fact, all they do is complain about the help that's offered. And the contrast is there so that you might read that and ask yourself, well, who who am I going to be like? Am I going to accept the help? Or am I going to complain about the help? And with that kind of 
application and question ringing in our ears, we come to the last of the servant songs where the precise nature of the help that God is offering us in the servant comes into sharp focus. And this fourth servant song is the most elaborate, the most detailed, in fact, the most profound of all the servant songs. It is the jewel in the crown of Isaiah. It is the place where we see how that chasm we can't cross is going to be crossed. Here is where we see how sins, not just a statement that they will be forgiven, but here is where God tells us how they will be forgiven. Now, this last of the servant songs is quite structured. The way the passage works, it's, it's like this. It starts and finishes with the servant being exalted. That while others despise the servant, in God's eyes, the servant is to be praised. So, for example, look at chapter 52, verse 13, the way the servant song starts, the last one. 52, verse 13, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and highly exalted. Now, that sentiment of he's going to be praised and highly exalted, that gets echoed at the end of the song. So look at the last few verses, chapter 53 now. And verse 12, the last few verses of this this final song, it says from verse 11 there, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life on the death and was numbered with the transgressions. Do you see that the opening and closing emphasis here on that the the servant is going to be honoured? But even though he's going to go through a hard time, ultimately he'll be exalted. Ultimately he'll be esteemed. He'll be distinguished. Which is a little curious because as you move into the next part of the song, from both ends actually, what gets emphasized is that despite the servant being exalted by God, he was in fact rejected by mankind. And so, for example, look at 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Or from the other side, look at verse 7, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now, in some of the other servant songs, as we've seen, we've got some hints, really, just hints of how, how difficult this life's, the life of this servant will be, but nothing really re- prepares us for this level of rejection. He'll be despised, full of sorrow, suffering, oppressed, afflicted. He'll be so disfigured as to be unrecognisable. And as the the words of the description mount up and as the treatment of this servant takes on terrifying proportions, it's actually made all the more intense by the fact that in this last servant song, the servant never actually utters a word. Unlike all the other servant songs where he does speak, where he does declare things about himself, here he is exactly as he is described, silent as a lamb towards the slaughter. And of course, we're reading about Jesus. We're seeing the echoes, aren't we, of the terrifying treatment 
that our Lord Jesus Christ faced from his own people, particularly there at the cross. Now, Jesus had to endure a disciple betraying him. Then there was the mockery. Then there was the the sham, a false arrest, a rigged trial that was rushed through in the middle of the night. Strangers making up lies about him. And, of course, then you had the flogging from the Romans, which if it was a typical flogging, he would have been flogged so hard that on his back it probably left his back completely shredded and even some of his internal organs left open to the air. And, of course, you've got the crowd then baying for his blood, saying he saved others, he couldn't save himself. They have the murderer who gets released instead of him. On top of that, while he's on the breath, while he's on the cross and the nails are through his hands, while he's gasping for breath, probably going in and out of consciousness, there you have also the soldiers by his side gambling for the very last piece of property that he owns. And all for what? What did the guy ever do that was wrong? All for what? Well, our passage in Isaiah tells us for what? Because you see how this song is working. It opens and closes with how the, the servant is exalted. Does the battery run out? Do I need to go to the other one? Uh, it seemed to uh, freeze. And then go. Uh, yeah, but maybe like one minute ago. Sure. Sure. We're back on. I'm not quite sure what's happened there. Uh, right at a, a key point. We're in that part where where I'm saying, here is how the servant has been so brutally mistreated. We're reading about the life of Jesus. And you get, why is he treated like this? For what reason? And you get there when you see in, um, Isaiah 53 tells us what for. This passage, it opens and closes with how the servant will be exalted. Then it works in both directions, emphasizing how the servant is then rejected by mankind. And it's all zeroing in onto the middle verses, the middle three verses, where it explains why our Lord and Master was rejected. It's all about him substituting himself for us. Let me read you those those middle three verses. It says there, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I don't really know how to explain the magnitude of these verses to you. The servant who substitutes himself for us. But I do want you to notice here just the the way in which it talks about he and ours. He took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In other words, all the sufferings and the death that was inflicted upon this servant, they are the sufferings and the death that we ourselves should have gone through. He suffered our punishment in our place. He was stricken by God instead of us. See, when Jesus stepped on the cross, he stepped in front of God's judgment and he sacrificed himself in the place of all his people, 
He substituted himself. And it's an astonishing thing. You know, it's, it's one thing to step in and substitute yourself for people you love. You know, step in front of a um, step in front of an oncoming car and push your own kids out of the way because you love your kids. It's one thing to do that, but here Jesus sacrifices himself for rebels, and he does it deliberately. It's a whole entire reason he came, and this is the masterpiece of God's plan here in Isaiah. That plan to pardon repentant people. You know, that plan to wash snow, uh, sins as white as snow. Here is how God's going to do it. The servant is the key. He will substitute himself for us, be punished in our place, so that all the things we've ever done wrong, all of them, can be washed clean because of him. And that is magnificent because if you've got things in your life that you'd like washed clean, Things in your life that you've done wrong? I mean, of course you have. I know for each one of us, there'd be things that, that if, if people found out that I'd done them, if people had found out that I'd, that I'd thought that, man, I, I'd just die of embarrassment. Would you like those things removed? Well, because of the servant, they can be. And it is such a magnificent part of the whole Bible, that when you get to the New Testament, passage after passage after passage just keeps coming back to this. Jesus himself will say that he came to give his life as a ransom to many. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, will say, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Peter says, Christ Jesus died once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Over and over again, the Bible keeps coming back to the same point, that at the cross, Jesus died as our substitute. You know, some people see the cross of Jesus and see it primarily as an example for us to follow, that it should spur us on to love one another. Other people see the cross primarily as a, as a terrible carriage of misjustice that should then spur us on to social action to, to, to stop so many other misjustices that happen in our world. Now, friends, these things might be partly true in and of themselves, but they are woefully inadequate at explaining what the cross is all about, that the servant died as our substitute. That is why here at Wagga Evangelical Church, we are overtly and unapologetically always on about Jesus always on about Jesus taking our place. I mean, every now and then someone comes to our church, maybe it's a visitor, they come and they hear us and they go, gee, you're on about sin a lot. And gee, you're on about, you're on about Jesus a lot. And they say it as if we should be on about something else. I mean, there's not something else to be on about. The death of Jesus on the cross, the substitution of his servant in our place, that it's not just a central part of this passage today. It's the centerpiece of God's plan to save humanity. This is how sins will be washed as white as snow. In fact, it's not just a centerpiece. It's the masterpiece. And it's a masterpiece at a number of levels. So much to say, but let me, let me conclude with just one. It's the masterpiece because of how much assurance it gives us. Because it's not about us anymore, is it? It's about what Jesus, a suffering servant, has done. So you don't have to worry anymore about are you good enough to get to heaven you don't have to worry or agonize anymore about whether you've done enough good things you don't have to be weighed down by guilt over the things that you'd wished you'd never done no we're saved our sins are washed as 
washed away. And it's all done by Jesus, the servant, sacrificing himself in our place. Which is why it says that the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. In other words, things between us and God are good, are sorted out once and for all, all because of what the servant has done. And so we are able to approach God with ease and confidence. You know, see, we, see, when my kids come home from wherever they've been, you know, they don't knock at the door and wait to be let in and they don't kind of awkwardly stand around in the lounge room be, or waiting to be offered a seat to sit in. Now, what happens is they let themselves in the front door, they swan through the house, they go straight to the fridge, they open it up and they make themselves at home and they lounge around wherever they want and they enter with ease and confidence and relaxation and that is what we are able to do with God. In complete comfort, we can approach God and be at ease with him with full assurance because he is at ease with us because the servant took our place. And you know what? God loves it that way. He loves to be that involved in your life. He loves to be at that amount of ease with you. That's why he planned to send the servant, to send Jesus Christ as substituting himself. Can you believe it? that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him and by his wounds we are healed. We're going to pray about these things, about these things now.